1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and today we'll be talking with Professors Felix B. Chang and Sonny T. Rucker Chang on new books in Eastern European Studies and new books in African American Studies about their book, Roma Rights and Civil Rights, A Transatlantic Comparison Published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Thanks, Felix and Sonny for joining us today. Thanks so much Thank for you having for us. Having us. Well, I'm really excited about reading this book. But first, I want to introduce our audience to to you. So, a little bit about um, your bios. Felix Chang is associate dean and professor of law at the University of Cincinnati College of Law, where he co-directs the Corporate Law Center. His research focuses on markets, inheritance, and inequality. He is the co-author with Dr. Sonny Rucker Chang of Chinese Migrants in Russia, Central Asia, and Eastern Europe, published by Routledge in 2011. Felix's current projects explore ethnically segmented markets, new tools for antitrust research, and wealth mobility through inheritance law reform. Professor Chang received his BA from Yale and his JD from Michigan. Dr. Sunny Rucker Chang is Associate Professor of Slavic and East European Studies, and she directs, she's the director of European Studies at the University of Cincinnati. In her work, she examines how literary and filmic works contribute to cultural landscapes and offer insight into the formation of nations and nationalities in Southeast Europe, particularly as they relate to the construction of minority-majority and minority-minority relations and formations of difference. So we'll be talking about their book today, Roma Rights and Civil Rights, a transatlantic comparison. And I want to start with a really basic question for you, um, knowing that you have been involved with Central European University. um, What was it exactly that got you interested in and and motivated toward this comparison?
0: So um, the biggest, one of the largest motivators for me for this project was actually my positionality um, as a black American woman who uh, has a PhD in Slavic languages and literatures. As time went on, it increasingly um, became clear to me that there were systemic processes of marginalization for African-American communities as well as for Romani communities. And so I started this research to try to think about intersections, work through similarities and differences, and try to find a, a really good framework for comparison and also relational ways of understanding our differences and similarities as well.
3: And Stephen, for me, the reason I was inspired to take on this project, uh, I I really became interested in Romani communities when I first visited Southeast Europe, uh, when Sunny was doing field work for her dissertation. Um, I visited Serbia in 2006 and saw really fascinating interactions between the Roma and also between Chinese migrants. Um, After 1991, there was an influx of Chinese migrants mainly working as small-scale merchants, across Southeast Europe, but in particular in Serbia, and it really intrigued me their interactions as these traditional middlemen minorities with the Romani Romani residents of those communities. It really, to me, brought back to mind um, some of the middlemen minority literature about the US, for instance, uh, with Korean American green grocers or Korean American retailers uh, in Chicago or in Los Angeles. I had previously uh, undertaken projects with Sunny. We had written, as you noted, about Chinese migrants in Russia, Central Asia, and Eastern Europe. And although these days I focus mainly on antitrust, financial regulation, and inequality, I was intrigued enough uh, about the legal comparison between civil rights and Roma rights uh, to take on this massive project with Sunny. And, yeah.
0: and just- Add, sorry, very quickly to ahead, add. Um, sorry. So um, I was thinking many ways of, of, does culture really motivate changes in society or does law or do laws um, motivate changes? And I think both of us collectively realized that a way to find answers to these questions was to work through them, both through legal and cultural um, means.
2: Yeah. And, and I think you've perfectly inter- inter- in, interpreted or maybe anticipated my next question. So I, I wanted to ask you about your big questions for the book. And I, I, I think in many ways, as you argue, race still remains a, a taboo subject in Europe and, and has for decades and still is in the European Union. So do, do you have big guiding questions or maybe big guiding goals for the book?
0: Hmm. Well, I think that I um, as you say, race remains a very big question. And this book um, is one aspect of the questions that I'm trying to answer as to how we understand race and racial formations in Central and Eastern Europe. And I thought, or we thought, that by looking to A very established uh, body of literature in the United States that looks at race, uh, it might be illuminating as to how we might think about race in the context of Central and Southeast Europe. Um, And and that's one way. But it's also another way of looking at Romani communities as racialized communities to say um, to colleagues in European studies and also in Slavic and East European studies to say that we have examples of racialization and racial formations if we only allow ourselves to look at it in that way.
3: Um, that, yeah. So sunny has been really focused about um, looking, at not having to look outside Southeast Europe to talk about race and looking at local manifestations of race. Together we've looked at how Romani marginalization is systemic and how it's really impossible to understand you know, the cultural and social constructs of national identity without understanding the positions of Roma within those nations. Um, As a legal scholar, my lenses of analysis are a little bit different. So uh, in taking on this project, I really used uh, two kind of frameworks from law. One was interest convergence. And that was a theory that was articulated by Derek Bell to explain why white elites supported civil rights during the U.S. civil rights movement. And I also used federalism, which is this idea of separation of powers between a central authority and its constituents. I thought that these two lenses from a law were really useful because interest convergence highlights why the European Union embraced Roman inclusion when it did. And uh, federalism explains how effective civil rights and Roma rights could be when they were enacted, when they were adopted by the central powers.
2: Mhm. Yeah, and maybe you could give our listeners an idea of how you chose your chapters and and to lay out the book along these methodologies, because it it is, after all, a diachronic comparison, as you say, Mm -hmm. between the civil rights movement and civil rights legislation in the U.S., say, um, since Brown versus the Board of Education. So maybe this is a a, a two-part question. The the first is really about the comparison between um, the civil rights movement in the U.S. and Roma rights, and then secondly, how you decided to organize the book with your chapters.
3: Sure. I I can talk about why we decided to make a diachronic comparison. Um, I think as you're implying and rightfully so, Stephen, a lot of comparisons that are undertaken, particularly by historians, tend to be synchronic, that is at the same time. So some of the classic histories, for instance, by George Fredrickson on the civil rights in South Africa were synchronic. But we thought that the diachronic comparison was really appropriate here for a number of reasons. Um, you know, civil rights in the U.S. and the European Roma-driven Roma, the European Union-driven Roma inclusion, both occurred at key points of constitutional deepening, and also, uh, I guess, territorial enlargement for the federal and supranational entities. So these would be the top hierarchy of each federalist system in the U.S. That's a federal government, and in the EU, that's the supranational body of the European Union. Um, these two episodes of civil rights and Roma rights also happen to coincide with reckonings of deeply entrenched historical paradigms. And for the US, that would be the legacy of Jim Crow in the South, um, but also throughout the US. And for Europe, that would be the legacy of communism. Um, And the final thing was that minority rights really played key roles in both constitutional developments of the U.S. and of the EU's constitutional orders. And in addition, minority rights was also really useful in positioning like the liminal parts of each nation. So in the U.S. that would be the South and in Europe that would be Eastern Europe. Um, Minority rights is really important in framing those liminal parts of each nation as areas where they had to lift up, for instance, their treatment of minorities. Now, this is a really interesting comparison because uh, it, it also illuminates certain certain things about our own history. And by that, I mean U.S. history. So oftentimes uh, in, in this burgeoning movement of critical Romani studies, we had found this kind of reflexive um, embrace of this comparison between Roma rights and the U.S. civil rights movement. But when we dug a little deeper, we saw that the way Roma rights featured so prominently into the constitutional expansion of the European Union order had parallels in the U.S. And really interestingly, you had some parallels before the civil rights movement. And in particular, that dates back to Reconstruction when the U.S. underwent its own period of constitutional deepening and territorial expansion, and also this notion of conditionality, which is conditioning membership requirements into a club that would be the union upon the fulfillment of certain criteria um, so so that was why we thought that the diachronic comparison was particularly useful um, you know unbeknownst to us when we undertook this comparison it really illuminated a lot of things about US history
2: yeah that's that's great and I want to come back to the con- conditionality issue and 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 hear you develop that Um Fantastic. Uh, could you give us an idea of the chapters? So I, I think you have five or six chapters in the book. Yes. Uh, how, did, how, how do those um, pan out?
0: Okay. So we start the book out uh, with historical comparisons from slavery to World War II. Um, and in this by starting out the, the book in this way, we're able to highlight or really shed some light on the fact that there are similar conditions for some Romanian communities, particularly in contemporary Romania, Of slavery, which then adds, uh, allows us to draw comparisons or parallels between the transatlantic slave trade and its impact on Black communities in the United States, and then the um, slavery, the the historical um, roots of slavery within Romania, uh, and how we can draw comparisons there. Then we have from Cold War to Eastern enlargement, and this we see as a way to compare and contrast what was happening in the communities, what was happening by way of communism versus what was happening um, with the Cold War antagonisms in the United States. Um, resistance in the nation, where we're looking at these um, these periods where we're trying to look at what was the uh, underlying principles of what could constitute the, the nation. And this is where we start to see parallels between, um, who gets to be an American and who does not get to be an American? And similarly, who gets to be a European and who does not get to be a European? And then we're able to see comparisons between Europeanness and Americanism as being really very much formed around. Um, the sort of central idea of whiteness and drawing comparisons and parallels between what that means in terms of the belonging or lack of belonging for minority communities, particularly Roma and African Americans in the context of Europe and the United States. Then we move to minority protections and conditionality, which uh, Felix was just talking a lot about um, minority protections and internal governance. And then finally, we end. With, um, well, not truly, finally, because we do have a conclusion, but the filmic representations, which is a way to think about uh, film as a culture industry, which reproduces and produces some of the ways and many of the ways that we view and understand minority communities, particularly looking at um, representation, encoding, and encoding through the lens of Stuart Hall, and how filmic images help to solidify. Um, understandings of otherness and difference for minority communities. And then in the conclusion, we kind of end where Felix just ended, where by looking at Romani rights movements and the racialization of Romani communities, we found some really interesting parallels and we learned a lot about the American experience as well through
2: Mm -hmm. these parallels. Yeah, I'm. I'm really intrigued by the the later chapters too, and the, and the film chapter and the filmography. So I hope to be able to come back to that as well. Um, I want to ask a, a couple of questions about critical Romani studies mm-hmm. and your understanding of that discipline, um, both among Romani intellectuals and, let's say, among um, non non-Roma or non-Romani allies. So, for our listeners, what what is this discipline and? Um, could you give us maybe a almost like a timeline for it? What, what does advocacy mean for it and within it and beside it?
0: Um, it's a really interesting question, and I think that it's an ongoing question that um, has taken many shapes and turns in the last decade to fifteen years, I would say. Um, so, critical Romani studies um, is a field that is really challenging scholars to use critical lenses and critical theories to think about Roma, which is a move away from um, ethnographic traditions and traditions that really tend to uh, concretize notions of um, Roma as others or Roma as being outsiders and therefore in need of study. Um, In one of my pieces, I talk about Roma as being objects of study rather than participants and um, initiators of their own knowledge formation or knowledge production. Right. So looking at Romani critical Romani studies, in in one of the ways in the books that in the book that we look at this is thinking about the introduction of Black studies in the 1960s, whereby um, African American scholars and students are saying, you know, let us think about, let us and our allies think about and produce, think about how we see ourselves, think about how we would like to be envisioned and learn our own history. Um, and then let us come to critical ways of understanding our. Experiences in the historical processes that have shaped where we are now. And in that way, I see critical Romani studies as being relational, in that Romani scholars are now engaged in knowledge productions about themselves. And Felix and I both are are not Roma scholars, but we consider ourselves to be allies. And in taking on the role of ally, I I personally, and Felix does as well, we try to front critical uh, Romani. study scholarship and our scholarship to make sure that that knowledge is out there, but making sure that we and our scholarship are also raising awareness of the scholarship that's out there, but then also how we might engage with Romani studies as a field.
3: Yeah. And, and to that, I would add a, a, a few um, things. The first is that critical Romani studies, again, as Sunny mentioned, is really this turn against this long tradition of um, Romani studies as a really ethnographic an approach. And it's got this really sordid history um, of gypsyology where in at, at times in Europe, it has fueled uh, these really racist tr- tropes. And so critical Romani studies is this response. Another thing I would highlight is that critical Romani studies um, is part of a movement that really tries to draw parallels with other minorities rights movements and thinking about structures of oppression and of racialization. And so um, that is particularly interesting to us because um, some of the earlier literature in critical Romani studies was really interested in uh, the US literature out of critical race theory and intersectionality. And the last thing I would just emphasize again, Sonny's already mentioned this, but we're both very conscious about the fact that neither of us is Roma. And so um, the way I've sought to approach this is just to think about uh, the structure of the law. And both to talk about how maybe it purports to be neutral, but at the same time, it can't altogether be neutral when it's embedded in this system. Um, but that is something that we've tried to keep in mind as well.
2: Yeah. And and I wonder if you could take that forward, actually, maybe backward to move forward um, into Derek Bell, whom you mentioned, because you, ha- you have this, I think it's a great contribution to critical race theory and, and building off of that. But it, I see it maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, as a point of departure as well to doing um, some of the advocacy work and the history within, within the EU of Roma communities to move away from these old racist or racialized anti, uh, anti-Roma tropes. So it, maybe could you develop this a little bit? Talk, talk about how you understand interest convergence and, and federalism in an EU context.
1: slash NBN50 to get 50% off?
3: Sure. I can start with interest convergence. So interest convergence was, again, this theory of Derek Bell, where he said that the reason why white elites had signed on to the US civil rights movement was that at the time it was the Cold War. And so the US, in order to maintain a front of legitimacy in the exercise of foreign powers and diplomacy, had to show countries um, around the world that it was basically not a, not a, not a racist society. And uh, that theory has been vindicated subsequently by the work of historians such as uh, Mary Dujak and Thomas Borstelman, you know, books such as Cold War Civil Rights, that really document this connection between the Cold War and civil rights. When it gets imported into EU-driven Roma inclusion, is really interesting because you see throughout the EU's expansion of its constitutional order, minority rights really did not feature prominently at, at all. Um, it wasn't really in its powers. You know, when the EU sought to, um, w- when the EU sought sort of e- equal protection or equality, it began with uh, gender equality rather than racial equality. And so the real question that we ask is why? Why at this moment does the EU sign on so forcefully to, uh, to Roma inclusion? In the early days, it was called Roma integration. And we we trace this back to that conditionality process, um, you know, as the EU was preparing for its fifth enlargement, which led in ten members. It was a large enroll, uh, in enlargement, and there were a lot of uh, members from Southeast Europe and from Eastern Europe and from Central Europe that were formerly formerly communist and socialist. So this process of conditionality that was meant to lift up um, the standards of uh, democratic ideals and minority protections. Um, they were imposed as conditions. And so the interest convergence aspect of it is why? Why does the EU do this at this time? And we argue that the reason is because they were really worried about influxes of refugees. This was the Balkan Wars, and so Western and Northern Europe and even Canada and the US were seeing huge influxes um, of refugees out of former Yugoslavia. But at this time, as a result of the turn to you know market liberalization. Um, there was, you see this in many societies in periods of economic downturn, uh, you see uh, turns to xenophobia. And so Romani communities were really forcefully persecuted at this time. And to the extent that you had a lot of Romani refugees who were seeking um, asylum and and refuge in Western Europe and in Northern Europe. And what we argue is that, that you had forged these policies to enlist Eastern Europe as its buffer against this westward um, movement of refugees and of migrants. Um, that's that's the interest convergence part of it. I'm I'm happy to talk about the federalism part as well, but I wanted to pause to see if you might have any questions or if, if Sunny wants to chime in. Yeah, no, Sunny, think- please please if 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 you have something to add.
2: Um, I I mean, really, I would like to ask both of you about your chronology in this case. So you're talking about Maastricht and Copenhagen and Amsterdam. And and I think in a really interesting way, maybe rewriting or revisiting the period of the 1990s and, and 2000s. So, I mean, if you're talking about multiculturalism, and we haven't used that word yet, and I've been consciously avoiding it, um, how do, you, how do you understand the policy changes through these um, enlargement moments? Because there, there are waves, obviously, five, six, seven. Um, I, I guess I'm asking you to kind of conceptualize uh, chronologically what happens um, for our listeners in the 1990s and
3: 2000s. Sure. Uh, so what happens is um, you have the fall of the Eastern Bloc, the fall of the Soviet Union, and then you have um the Maastricht Treaty in 1992 and in the 1990s you had this simultaneous process of EU enlargement that was it was expanding eastward in different rounds of accession where it brought in new members and mainly from from Eastern Europe from the former communist and socialist states. So at the time that it was enlarging territorially it was also deepening constitutionality uh constitutionally. So It was a period of about a a decade, about a decade to a decade and a half, where the EU tried really hard to forge a written constitution. Um, And you saw this at different intervals. You had the Maastricht Treaty of 1992 um, that set forth the Treaty of the European Union. Then you had the Amsterdam Treaty of 1997. And then onward, you had the Nice Treaty, but ultimately failing. Uh, But at the time that it was deepening constitutionally and enlarging territorially was this time when you began to see refugee influxes. And so that you had to, when it was enlisting Eastern Europe as its its buffer for us Eastern frontier, think through how are we going to do this? Now, it turns out that the EU's foreign affairs powers or its powers vis-a-vis aspiring members is, is much more fulsome than its powers of internal governance. So once these members become Members, and then that's it. And we see that today with the examples of Poland and Hungary. But at the time in the 1990s, this was a different game, and these were aspiring members. And the EU could be much more forceful with aspiring members about how they had to respect minorities than they had of their own um, their their own members. And so, um, in this period, you had this really uh, really memorable dis- discord or di- disjunction between what the EU was telling Central and Southeast Europe um, is, a, is a measure of conditionality and versus France, which in about, um, you know, in the early 2000s was forcibly deporting its Romani communities, quote, back to um, Bulgaria and Romania. Mm-hmm. Um, so the chronology is one where, uh, again, you had the constitutional deepening, the territorial enlarging, and then also where minority rights uh, uh, factors in, into that process.
0: And I, and I think it's important also to keep in mind the Yugoslav wars that are happening at this time. And in addition to Romani refugees, you also have ref- refugees that are coming from the former Yugoslav states, right? So it it's it's interesting to think about the fact that these um These new conditions on minority protections are being offered at this time. It's also important to realize that after the eastern expansion, uh, Roma become the largest minority in Europe, which was not the case. And because um, in many ways, uh, Romani communities, the largest Romani communities are in central and southeast Europe, it starts you, i think it's really important to ask the questions as to how the overlap in the time periods of my minority integration strategies and then romani communities entering or the potential of romani communities entering into western european or eu spaces comes to be a play here as well um and you can still see Um, this conflation of Eastern Europe and relatively new EU member states with Roma communities, with the deportation strategies that Italy and France both had of um, deporting EU citizens, quote unquote, back to these states. Right. Um, And so what does that mean? Not just for refugee Uh, refugee influx, but also for the changing nature of what Europe would look like with introducing states with such large um, populations of of Roma communities.
2: That's really interesting. And it it leads me to one of the really um, amazing themes of your book, and that's the intersection between law and culture. So uh, how do you gauge or how do you measure public opinion and attitudes in the Czech Republic or Romania, Bulgaria, the Balkans, Poland, and so forth told toward Roma populations? And do you see... Natural parallels between white supremacism in the U.S. and anti-black legislation, or what? What are you seeing? I guess in these intersections, because it, it's such an interesting contribution to the scholarly literature that, that you make in this book.
0: Yeah, and you know, thank you for asking that question. It was it was really interesting in looking at the the public opinion polls. So I looked primarily uh, at Eurobarometers, um, specifically the ones that were looking at. Uh, minority communities. And pretty consistently, um, they were had very high unfavorable um, feelings. Citizens reported very high unfavorable feelings towards Romani uh, members of their community. So questions such as, how would you feel if your child were to marry someone of Romani communities was consistently low, whereas questions such as, how would you feel if um, your child married or even went to school with um, someone who was Black or someone who was from a different ethnicity? Increased over the time period that I was looking looking at during this book, whereas questions about um, Romani communities were consistent. So to look at that, so I had originally been working with these Eurobarometers for my own research for a while, and so what I decided to do for this book was to look at similar public opinion polls before and after uh, Brown. Brown, well, Brown versus Board of Education, right? Um, and I found very similar um, statements, right? And so one of the, the metrics was educated or not educated, um, urban versus rural, Southern versus North, but the consistent ideas about um, unfavorable, ideas or unfavorable feelings towards African-Americans in the United States were consistent. Um, and even in situations where let's say Northern educated individuals who were surveys had favorable or at least illustrated tolerance towards African-Americans, um, they weren't interested in having them living in their communities. So it's this idea that you say one thing to, uh, the person who's surveying you, but in practice, you really hold something very deeply. Well, then, what I was able to do with these um, different sets of information is see the parallels of exclusion through um, sentiment and through these um, through the Eurobarometers and then through the public opinion polls in the U.S.
3: Sonny also looked extensively at film, so there's a chapter in here that looks at filmic representations of Roma and African Americans.
0: Yeah, and and so yeah. what. I, I didn't talk, know talk about that, the, please. Yeah, I, 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 love that, I love that chapter,
2: please. go <laughs> I, ahead. I was
0: wondering if you had any specific questions about the films, um, because I know that you had said I, that you, you had some questions. I,
2: I, I think you can introduce it. Um, so what, what is the filmography that, that, um, and what, I mean, what are the, what are the interesting themes that you see, or sure. I would say like sort of the public attitudes that you see reflected in, in these films and maybe talk about the directors and where they're shown and, and, um, how important they have become.
0: Yeah, so I was looking primarily um, at the period of following civil rights. So looking at 70s, African-American films, American films from the 1970s, and then looking at uh, post-2007 up till now films with Romani communities to see how these individuals or members of these communities were portrayed in film. And it seemed to me that um, the representations were fairly similar. So I looked at films from... Um, Hungary. I looked at films from Czech Republic, Slovakia, Yugoslavia. Um, And these are all films that are imagining themselves or where the Romani communities are being imagined and being cast as outsiders pretty consistently. Um, And taking on a task like this in many ways was not the easiest thing to do because I didn't want to ignore the specific histories um, and the film cultures of these countries. Um, But Even with that being a challenge, I was still looking to see if some of the some tropes or some images could be universally viewed through these films. Um, And one of the significant takeaways that I had through looking at these films was that um, the difference between self-representation or Romani directors versus African-American directors and the sense of empowerment and the sense of diverse representation and diverse roles that Roma and African-American characters had in these films. So you start to see these very um, similar stock, flat characters in the films that are created by non-Roma, whereas you start to see um, more realistic portrayals frequently through um, documentary style um, with by films that are produced by Romani directors. Now I use the means of black exploitation or, or use the lens of black exploitation to try to draw some parallels or make relational, um, comments with the, with the idea in mind that if changes in African-American representation had to come from the outside or come from within to be, diverse, and maybe that would be the case with Romani directors. And I think that there are not as many Romani directors um, right now to draw broad um, comparisons. But from what I was able to find, um, it seems to be the case that with the increase, and maybe this is um, pretty evident, but with an increase of, of Romani directors who are then Portraying Roma, you know, then you get to see more diverse portrayals. I will say, because this answer is getting a little long-winded, um, that there are allies also in this movement, and one in particular, one director in particular, Radu Jude, um, who is a Romanian director, uh, was directed a film called Aferim. Um, and it was about Romani slavery. And a film such as Afarim, now there's 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 another um short that's just recently come out that's directed by Alina Sherban, who herself is Roma, but it it helped to bring the fact of Rome of Roma enslavement in Romania to the public sphere, um, which is is not very well known. So, whereas in the United States, It is well known that there was slavery, African-Americans were enslaved and it's a part of our legacy. This legacy or Roma within Romania is relatively unknown. Um, And a film is very powerful in helping to elucidate uncovered and unknown histories. And that's why I, I, we ended the book there.
2: I feel I wanted to ask you, following up on, on these intersections between law and culture, about some of the, the case law studies that you see in parallel with, um, especially with um, African-American legislation, some of the landmark studies. Do you see major cases in the 2000s and 2010s teens where um, Roma rights are, are represented? And, and what are those parallels?
3: You see some parallels, but unfortunately, not as much of a development of case law. Part of that is that the comparators are just different. The lawmaking process in the EU is a little bit different. And the highest court in the land in the EU is the European Court of Justice. And it was only until very, very recently, until 2015, that they had the Ches case out of Bulgaria, which was this really interesting discrimination case where um, a Bulgarian telecom goes to install uh, these utility meters to do utility readings, they're installed at like six meters high in Romani neighborhoods, whereas they're at a meter and a half everywhere else. So that was a big discrimination case. But it really took until 2015. And that's really the only one that really comes to mind. Um, nothing like what we have in the US, landmark cases like Brown, um, and then other landmark cases that these segregated say higher education, swimming pools, housing, There, there's nothing like that. Uh, again, because the lawmaking is a little bit different. Um, in terms of case law, what you did see a lot in the early 2000s was a lot of litigation before the European Court of Human Rights. That's a distinct court though, because that's the court out of the, uh, that's, that's out of the COE. And, and the COE is very different than the EU. The COE or the Council of Europe is this larger organization. It's got more members, but it's really interested in um, upholding human rights and promoting European values but that's very different than the court, of, than the European Court of Justice, which is this constitutional court. Um, you did have this really important case that was DH and others versus the Czech Republic that was a, a Council of Europe, European Court of Human Rights case, which found that in this town of Ostrava in the Czech Republic, Romani students were being directed towards schools for students with mental and physical disabilities at a rate of like six, 17 times Um, non romani populations. And so that was discriminatory under the Council of Europe's body of law. Um, You don't see a very robust development of case law. And so um, it's interesting because the development of law in the EU, there are some parallels to the US, but you see cycles in in much smaller and quicker compression. And that's because the EU um, relative to the US is just a much newer body. And in terms of it really flexing its constitutional muscles in the area of minority protections, you're really talking about um, after like the late 1990s. It's it's really quick. And so, um, you know, you have some of this stuff. And then that, that is interesting because this is a diachronic comparison. It means that the EU also arrived more fully formed at an understanding of systemic discrimination. And kind of second generation discrimination than the US did. It took the US decades to get to an understanding of second generation discrimination. So, the first generation of discrimination laws prohibits overt discrimination, you know, things that are done out of racial animus. And now we're talking about second generation discrimination, thinking about like indirect discrimination, systemic discrimination, um, kind of like systematic subjugation. But it, when the EU was undertaking its own lawmaking, it had a, a much fuller understanding of that. The only thing is it didn't have the comp- competence to be able to do as much about it as the, the US could necessarily. And so what you have in the EU is just a lot more making of soft law and trying to enlist allies in non-governmental organizations, in international development banks um, like the World Bank and the IMF. So after some of the initial anti-discrimination Um, laws in the EU, like, say, the Race Equality Directive of 2000, um, you had this decade of Roma inclusion from 2005 to 2015. It's it's interesting because each generation of Roma inclusion integration is found to fail. So you get another generation that goes on for about 10 years, and that fails, and you get another generation. Um, But what... I think the EU found really quickly is that conditionality had its limits once these aspiring members became not candidates, but actual full-fledged members of the EU, that they were really powerless to do anything about, um, to do much about disc- racial discrimination. And so for Roma rights, uh, the EU enlisted allies, again, NGOs and banks to, to think about Um, anti-Roma discrimination in more, um, I guess, macro terms, so second generation terms. So uh, you have with the decade of Roma inclusion, thinking about Roma inclusion in kind of a forefront approach of thinking about inclusion in housing, education, and employment and health. So this is much more systemic to say, what we're going to do is, you know, not really think so much about like first generation racial animus, but to say, how can we lift up or how can we close the gaps in these four key areas between Roma and everyone else? and so it's a really sophisticated way of understanding it, and there was a lot of soft law around this in enlisting other bodies to help um, but it 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 too, you know by the end by 2015, I think the decade really said that you made some progress, but there was still you know a lot of monitoring was inefficient and progress would be stymied at the local or national levels. Um, and so then you had the, the national Roma integration strategies that started happening in 2011 where you said, okay, what we're going to do now is going to push down responsibility for Roma in integration down to each member state. Each member state had to articulate um, you know, national strategies. I guess the, the last element of lawmaking is to go back to the case law. It, it's also really interesting to me in that some of these really um, uh, landmark cases out of the European Court of Human Rights um, were helped in part by uh, veterans of the US civil rights movement. So Jack Greenberg, um, before he passed away when he was at when he was at Columbia, and also and James Goldstone at the Open Society, they were the ones who had really helped um bring about DH. And I think that's interesting for a number of reasons, because it shows that in some of the early days, um, these uh, these organizations were thinking about Roma rights in kind of a U.S. perspective of hey, let's do strategic litigation. You know, let's pick some really sympathetic plaintiffs. And let's let's get us some wins before some courts. But what you find is that it's not really all that helpful. It's not that enforceable. In talking to folks on the ground since then, they've said that you know schools are still just as desegregated as they have been after. 2007, after the Grand Chamber came down by saying that the Czech Republic had violated law in, um, you know, putting Romani students into schools for kids with disabilities, but you know on the ground there wasn't all that much change. And so what organizations on the ground um, have been trying to do is to just try to uh, do more monitoring, better monitoring, and to get, um, you know, to enlist the local actors more um, to help check. Governments. And in terms of litigation, my understanding is that the European Roma Rights Center, the ERRC, which has done a lot of this stuff, is now looking a lot at national level litigation mm-hmm. rather than yeah, thinking about litigation. Yeah, that, that, and, and that really is, is sort of my next question, you know, like
2: moving forward into the 2020s, because I, I want to pick your brain on how NGOs can be better. And <laughs> um, I'm thinking about Amnesty International and how it works sometimes with the e r r c um, but i spent i find myself spending a lot of time explaining American history to europeans and, and more time than I should so I, really I, what I want to ask both of you is um moving in this context uh, this transatlantic environment I, I would I would ask you know and for our listeners too. Um, how you understand some of the successes and failures of civil rights in the US and how you begin maybe to use that as a precedent or knowing it as a cautionary tale, how that might work and how that might not work in a a neoliberal context, whereas, as you say, the EU still remains as a kind of supranational government. It, It does have federal principles, but I'm wondering I'm wondering about the path going forward and if I could ask you about that.
0: Um, So it's a great question, Uh, not necessarily thinking about supranational structures, but thinking about it. um, And Felix can talk about that. But thinking about uh, when we started this research, where we began and where we ended um, and how uh, we cautioned ourselves at the end of the book by saying not to be too congratulatory about the benefits and outcomes of the civil rights movement, because it showed that um, there, there was still a lot of work to be done um, and a lot of work to be redone, right? And so maybe thinking about what working through Roma rights movements, working through the processes for social change, um, educational change, cultural representation, and all of the various pieces that contribute to that. And and what we might learn from each other, such that our civil rights movement, yes, indeed, brought with it many um, many possibilities, and it it gave many of us greater mobility. But then we look to see where we are now, and then question what you know what were the ultimate outcomes of that, and using using that as I said as maybe a cautionary tale for for Roma rights, and maybe taking with or applying some of of what has been successful in terms of knowledge production, in terms of critical race theory, in terms of working through what systemic oppression looks like and how to talk back to structures that continue to entrench um, that type of oppression. And moving that to the study of Romani studies, critical Romani studies, and maybe approaches to inclusion and what that looks like. Now, from a legal perspective, I think that Felix has much to say about that
3: uh, sure so So, I guess I would say that as an academic exercise, this comparison of Roma rights and civil rights, one of the key lessons that we draw is that uh the comparison really illuminates the long cycles that we have in the mm-hmm. u s um and so you know we 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 go back to reconstruction, and so there are interesting parallels in terms of conditionality but from Reconstruction to the second Reconstruction and civil rights to today, we do see cycles and ebbs and flows in the U.S. And maybe
0: even a third Reconstruction.
3: Maybe. Yeah, yeah, currently, maybe, maybe even a, a, a third Reconstruction. For Roma rights, at least in the EU-driven form of Roma inclusion that we've focused on, it's just had a lot short of a time span. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, it's perhaps too short to draw any firm conclusions to see anything about the cycle. So that's what I would say about the academic exercise. Practically, though, I, I, I would say that um, thinking about inclusion, not just laws, but also culture is really important. Sonny's done a lot of work um, with Romani organizations that work at pr- promoting um, Romani art. And so we think that art and cultural production and knowledge production is going to be really important. And also, that's why it's really heartbreaking what's happening at CEU, which is mm-hmm. the epicenter of Europe, critical Romani studies. But, you know, having this knowledge production and and, and having Roma scholars, being able to cultivate a generation of Romani scholars and to to have them really take charge of the knowledge production is really, really important. And then the last thing that I will add is, I guess, is a political exercise. It's really interesting because, you know, the the EU and the US as well seems to be like sort of lumbering from crisis to crisis at any given time. And today, the EU has been consumed with these migrant crises. And it's really interesting how Romani populations are pitted against migrants. Um, It it varies by country, of course, um, as it does, but we saw in in Hungary where um, Fidesz had enlisted Romani supporters to uh, really, uh, you know, to vote against, to to help them vote against the EU's generous migrant policies. I think we see kind of, um, you know, really interesting dynamics uh, here as well between say african americans and some migrant migrant, m- n- migrant communities, communities and immigrant yeah. communities so um th- that's something that that we've we're really interested in and something that we may be exploring in the future
0: and and also just to sort of just add on to that where enlisting romani communities to maybe um, vote against migrant interest but also through media networks, casting them right alongside migrant communities as other, as foreign. Um, Martin Rovid and Angela Koza, who are both involved in the the Romani Studies program, write about this, right? So these, this very... double-edged sword of, of existence and the way that they're portrayed within the communities. And the same thing happens here as well, where on one hand, the, the community is being used. Uh, and then on the other hand, they're being demonized and marginalized right along with the communities that they have been enlisted to further marginalize.
2: That That's a great point. I think about instrumentalization all the time and, and how the EU often in those, um, let's say, context of conditionality hides behind neutral laws and a lot of slogans. So I think, I think that's exceptionally important. Um, I, we're kind of winding down. I wanted to ask both of you if you could maybe recommend for our listeners some authors and books on, on your topic of Roma rights and civil rights. And um, maybe from there, also talk about your current research interests and uh, what's, what's motivating you right now into the next decade.
0: Yeah, so uh, the first recommendation I have is a book called Roma Activism, Reimagining Power and Knowledge. It's from 2018. Um, and the, the book is really looking at um, empowerment strategies and you have a lot of young Romani scholar activists and activists contributing to that volume. Um, the next one that I wanted to recommend is Why Race Still Matters by Alana Lenton. And she looks at some of the structural and systemic forms of racism to get away from um, what we have traditionally seen as racism and being racist. One of her most important contributions, I think, is the not racist idea and why that in and of itself is racist. Um, and then finally, not a book, but an organization, the European Rome Institute for Arts and Culture, has been um, running ongoing lectures and series as part of the Bar- Barvali per Roma Online University. Um, and they, I, I'm not, I think it's finished for now, but the, the lectures have been. Um, I believe that they're archived on their website and and anyone can access them. And it's very, very foundational information on information from language to culture to representation to intersectionality. Um, So very, very useful there. Um, And in terms of the work that I'm engaged on now, engaged in now, I am working on uh, finishing a manuscript on... Race, racial formations in Southeast Europe and looking at the meanings of Blackness and tying into that what it means for um, center periphery, East and West in Europe, looking at actual Black communities, local Black communities and Black student communities in former Yugoslavia, as well as looking at uh, Roman communities and their understanding or in their own self-designation as Black within those communities. And hopefully that manuscript will be done very soon.
3: And for me, my three recommendations in this area are, first, the journal Critical Romani Studies out of Central European University, um, which is terrific, Uh, and the second, a pair of edited volumes. The first is Realizing Roma Rights. That's edited by Jacqueline Jacqueline Baba, Andre Mirga, and Magna Macticae, and and that is really fantastic. Um, It was published by UPenn Press uh, about a year before our book came out. The other one is 10 Years After, and that's edited by Julius Rostus. And in their Julius interviews, veteran activists across Central and Southeast Europe on Roma education who had this really interesting take because they say that uh, you know the Romani experience during socialism in communism wasn't all that bad, at least there are some interviews that that say that. And I think that that's a really important point, um, which is the Romani experience during socialist during socialist and communist times. In terms of my research, I've started on this large project looking at the role that inheritance plays, and in particular inheritance law, into inequality. And so I'll be starting this comparison of inheritance and inequality in U.S. and China. So these are two giant economies, but their measures of inequality are rapidly converging. And Now we're looking at um, an era in which kind of global inequality, interestingly, has declined because you're seeing the rise of the middle class and upper middle class in Asia, but also the first generation of, you know, Chinese millionaires, and so I'm curious about what happens when they pass on their wealth, and what that means for inequality both within China and worldwide. Wow, uh, thank
2: you. That the, it's full of so many um, excellent recommendations for our listeners. So, um, I want to just end by congratulating you and urging people to read this book. Um, the book is called. Roma Rights and Civil Rights: A Transatlantic Comparison. Uh, the authors are Felix B. Chang and Sunny T. Rucker Chang, both at the University of Cincinnati, and it's published by Cambridge University Press in the year 2020. Thank you, um, Felix and Sunny, for joining us on the podcast today.
0: Thank you for having us. Thanks so
3: much, Stephen. This was fun.
2: I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here at New Books Network. Until next time.